KMTT, Kimitzion Titzei Torah. Today is Friday, Chav Sivan, Erev Shabbat Kodesh, Parshat Ba'alotcha, Ba'alotcha in Chutz Laaretz, in Etzra, we're reading Parshat Shlach. Chav Sivan is mentioned in the Poskim as a fast day. I never heard of anybody today still observing it. It was a fast day that was originally instituted after the Chamnitsky pogroms in Tachvetat, 1648-1649, when the Jewish communities of Poland, of Eastern Poland, were overrun in the Cossack uprising against the Polish overlords, and hundreds of thousands, we don't know the exact numbers, hundreds of thousands of Jews were, were killed, and at the time, I think Jewish history becomes very relative. At the time, it was viewed as being the greatest catastrophe, at least in Ashkenazi Jewry, since the Churban Habayit. More or less parallel to the uh, expulsion from Spain for, for Spanish Jewry. And afterwards, on the date of Chavsivan, was instituted a fast day. It's mentioned in the Poskim, and it was observed for, definitely for many hundreds of years. I recall, when I was younger, and I know someone who was supposed to get married. And when the Rav heard that it was the wedding was set for Chav Sivan, he asked them to postpone it. And they postponed it. It's still, mentioned, it's still a day of a certain, uh, uh, certain atmosphere. And this was, this was 30, 35 years ago, more. But uh, at least in that case, I know that some observation, some observance, excuse me, some observance of Chav Sivan was still, was still practiced. Even if the fast day as such has lapsed, uh, it's a, nonetheless a day of remembrance for a very, very extremely tragic period in Jewish life. Uh, anyone who, who has European background, Eastern European backgrounds, the name Chmelnitsky was used even a generation ago as saying, you know, something terrible. You know, Chmelnitsky was the archetypical uh, Jewish antagonist. I suppose his place has been taken today by later antagonists of the 20th century. The, all the communities of eastern Poland were destroyed. Hundreds of thousands of Jews were killed and everything had to be rebuilt, rebuilt again. I remember once hearing that there's, there's a theory that's found in some Jewish thinkers that certain periods of time, certain dates are crossroads. Which way you go on the crossroad depends on a lot of factors, on the schuyot of Amisor, whether Amisor merits or not. But there was a well-known drush in the years before 1648 that claimed that the Mashiach would come in 1648. The year Tach, Tavchet, uh, is, is the Jewish year. And there was a drush that said, from Parshat, Acharemot, uh, Bezot Yavo Aaron El Kodesh. Bezot in Gematria, Bet, Zayin, Alif Taf, is the year Zot, Zot, Bezot, Zot, Zayin, Alif Taf is the year Taf Chet, which is 1648 in the coming era. Bezot Yavo Aaron El Kodesh, in the year Zot, Aaron will come to the Kodesh, meaning the Beit HaMikdash will be rebuilt. Instead of that, the, instead of Aharon coming to the Kodesh, the Cossacks came to the Jewish communities. 
And this, I think, to other cases as well, with the theory of those, but this is one of the more well-known instances where some people try to say the prophecy or the gematria was not incorrect, but all it means is that it's a potential. Aside from the mystic background to this to this vote, I think there's a great deal of truth here. What it's really saying is that all the mechanical and 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 numerical rules that we can apply, the Mashiach should come now, this should be this, they're only potential. We really believe in Bukhirach of Shis, we really believe that the relationship between ourselves and God in Jewish history is 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 dependent on, on how we behave, on, on on what our relationship with God is. And it's true, there might be certain times which have an outside influence, but that's only potential for going one way or the other. The particular theory that I'm mentioning claims that it goes one way or the other to an extreme. It won't be an average year. It'll either be a year of great redemption or a year of great destruction. I don't know if that's true or not, but the basic idea it says is that even if you're of this bent of mind to look for gematria, etc., you should remember that it's only a potential. And we still have to build on it, both in our actions and relationship with God and in our actions in the real world, and only from that can come the Yeshua. short comment from this week's Pasha. The Pasha describes in getting ready for the Jews to enter Eretz Yisrael to set off on the journey from where they are near Hasinai, it would have been only a few days to go to Eretz Yisrael. So it describes how they're going to move. God told Moshe Rabbeinu to make trumpets and to arrange the Machaneh and when it came time to move they would move in, according to the trumpets in a certain way. 
And then the Pasuk describes how this is how they would eventually travel through the desert. They would travel when God told them to travel. And they would stop when God told them to stop. Alpi Hashem Yachanu, Alpi Hashem Yisau. According to God, will they encamp? According to God, will they travel? The Shila stated that this is a remez, this is a hint to us, that everything a person does, all his actions, all his activities, he should remember to say the name of God. For instance, if you're saying you're going somewhere, Alpi Hashem Yisau, what does it mean Alpi Hashem, the hint, what does it mean Alpi Hashem Yisau, you should travel Alpi Hashem, means you should travel Emiyetz Hashem. And when you encamp, when you stop, so you say, well, I'm stopping here, and we found a good place to stop, Baruch Hashem. The name of God should be in your mouth, everything you do, it's a Jewish custom to say Yemitz Hashem, to say Bezvat Hashem, to say Baruch Hashem. But everything we do, the Shalash said, it's a Pasuk, Al Pi Hashem Yachanu, you should do what you're doing with God's name in your mouth, the Al Pi Hashem Yisau. My guest today, guest so to speak, is Morinu Barabeinu, Mori Harav, of Yosef Dov, Alevi Salvechik, Zecher Tzadik, Kadosh Livrocha. A excerpt from an old recording. The Rav is discussing, answering the question, how a religious person, what is a religious personality that can inspire others, that can lead others? The question had to do with the connection between religious leadership of Rabbanim or any religious Jew and the general populace and, and Jews of all different kinds. And in the course of the Vav's answer, he also recounts a fascinating story about Maran Haravkuk. If the rabbis would just be able to inspire the Balabar. And if you mean inspire me, the rabbi should become, become a helmet. No, no one, no one demands it from the rabbi or from any Bentayot. They should see that there is the religious tremor in the rabbi. The religious tremor. The rabbi is swept off his feet by, by the storm of, of religiosity, of the ex, of, by the experiential storm, swept off his feet. We don't see it, the laymen. And I want to tell you, American, Jewish laymen in America are very intelligent and very critical, <coughs> and they cannot be fooled. That's we, never underestimate me in the intelligence of the laymen, of the laity in America. And this is the problem, you see. You ask me how to communicate our ideas? Through fascination. How is fascination possible? Fascination only possible if there is a religious experience. How to develop this religious experience, I don't know. You see Chumash many times, you see. You don't have your Chumash, but many times you do have some Chumash brashes. I mean Shmos. All right, I don't want to interrupt now this session. The Chumash Shmos. Chumash Shmos. The people, the, the people were... All right, fine. And the people began to rebel. People were in a rebellious mood, in a nasty mood. They were about to stone Moses and I. What happened? Vayiketaber el ha'aren al kol adaz bnei Yisrael vayifnu el amigo 
when you wait at the Shem near the Oran. What did they see? They saw the glory of God appeared in the cloud. Did God spoke to them? No. Did God speak to them, I mean? Did God speak to them? No. There was no communication of ideas between God and the people. There was absolutely, there was silence. But through this silence of beholding the glory of the Shekinah in the cloud, apparently the people changed completely. By one. What medium has God employed in how to influence the people? In how to change a rebellious mood into a mood of tremor and a mood of sanctity and solemnity. What did he do? What did he do? He told them something. No. There was no communication. Of course, with Job, God engaged in a debate. I understand. So Job realized something which he didn't know before. But here there was no debate. There was no... There was no dialogue between God and Israel. No conversation. They were just confronted by the glory of the Shrine. All you need, if you want to, to change a person, you don't have to talk to him. The best communication is through silence. No vocabulary can convey as much as silence. But if the silence is impregnated with glory, that's all. This is fascination. And this is if a religious personality, he doesn't have to talk too much. This exactly this is wrong with our orthodoxy now. You see, we don't fascinate. There is no fascination on our part. Canoe is number one, and fascination is number two. Absolutely not equivalent to fascination. And you see that even God, the Bereum, employed not explanation, but fascination. Suddenly, the people of Israel were in a nasty mood, in a vulgar mood, just out for flesh, for the, for the flesh, for the path of flesh. And people just hungry like animals suddenly, suddenly turned into an elected community. Not by accepting any new message, but just by being confronted by God. Whoever is capable of that is a religious leader. Whoever is incapable, he can be the best speaker, the most wonderful scholar. His efforts, are, as far as religious leadership is concerned, will be wasted completely. Uh, I'll tell you what I... Uh, years ago, it's quite 24 years ago, I was the only time I was in Israel, I came to a kibbutz. It's called Kinneret. It's one of the oldest kibbutz in Israel. It's Ganya and Kinneret, the two oldest kibbutz. I believe now it's a Mapan kibbutz or a Shomer Atzair kibbutz. I don't know, but it's quite, it's quite on, the, on the border already, on the borderline of, of Stalinism. <coughs> At least very close to this border. <coughs> yes. I came in, it was, I believe it was in the, during the three weeks, the dry Wochen. I remember it was a very hot day. We were working the fields and the vineyard fields and the, in the uh, uh, orange groves, working very hard. I came in, I mean, rav, 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 America, not no, fine. Anyway, half cynical, half, half sarcastic. So, and, and young boys, of course, by now they're middle-aged or old. I don't know. I have, I have age, they have age, probably. <coughs> I haven't seen them for a long time. So, of course, I mean, they're cynical approach to any American Jew, particularly an American rabbi. You see, I, I anyway. So it was totally ruined. So but still, but they were quite hospitable, quite hospitable. So they, so of course, I mean, their kitchen was strafe. So they treated me with grapes. I remember that, grapes, fresh grapes. So I refused to eat. I refused to eat. I assumed that the kitchen was strafe, so they gave me grapes. So I refused to eat. So they, I said, why? They said, why? What's wrong with the grapes? The grapes are not ripe. So, no, the grapes are trafe too. I mean, in Eretz Israel, grapes are trafe. 
is a not Mishra Maisa, I mean, it's terrible, it's just like Vasa Bechalot. They said, no, I mean, the Shriach and the Rabbanut Rashid comes and somehow it sets apart the two Mishra Maisa. Fine. Then he told me, even we can assure you that our kitchen is kosher. Kitchen kosher, I opened my eyes. You have a kosher, a kosher kitchen? Yes, they have. So I simply asked them, what made you make it? Can we introduce a kosher kitchen? <coughs> and they told me just a, the following incident, which took place a few years before. A Rav Kook, which was a religious personality. Many people think that a Rav Kook was a great philosopher. This is wrong. He was not a philosopher. With all my reverence for Rav Kook, believe me, I revere him. He was not a philosopher. He was not a philosopher. What he was, a great religious personality. Judaism to him was not an idea. It was a great experience, a passion, a love. It was a reality, a living reality. I mean, he, he, he simply not only Judaism, he didn't, not only was, you see, not only the mind comprehended Judaism, but simply his five senses perceived Judaism. Judaism to him was a sense experience, not intellectual experience. This was his greatness. This, this was his greatness. And his impact is still felt in Israel. Just the last few days I spoke with this rabbit, rabbit atheist from Israel. But still, when they mention the name of Rav Kook, is his reverence. And basically, it's too bad that he died. I mean, so soon. Because he, the potentialities he developed in Israel were almost unlimited. Of course. By what? Not by his philosophy. No one knows. Basically, if you ask me what Rav Kook's philosophy is, I don't know. I don't believe it's possible to systematize, systematize his philosophy. I don't believe but when you read his books, when you read his writings, you see it is like a stormy sea. Stormy sea. Like a powerful tide driving you into lands unknown, into parts, into mysterious parts. That's what you say. That's the impression I get. And that's enough for me. I don't have to understand so much and to find complete philosophical coherence in Ishita. You wouldn't find it. But he was basically a religious personality. And he came there, he came for Shabbos. He came Friday late afternoon. He brought along with himself two chalas and, and wine, because he wouldn't drink their wine, because he had less of the moon. And so Friday night, so he came into the dining room. The dining room was completely trafe, completely trafe. He sat down at the same table. He came accompanied by Shamis or someone, who, a friend of his. And he said, Kiddush over the wine. And he benched. He didn't eat anything else. And they switched on the light and switched off the light. I heard it from them. That's not just a legend. Switched on the light, switched off the light. They didn't care about it. They simply ignored his, his present. As if, as if he... As if he, I mean... I mean, hadn't come to, to their place. Then Saturday morning, he wanted a million. They refused to give him a million. So he done for himself. He told me. They went out into the fields, to, to, uh, whatever, they, to, to, to cultivate land, I mean, to, to, I don't know what, to harvest, whatever, I mean, I don't know what season they came. And they came back and they sat down, he made kiddush, Saturday morning, ate his challah, yeah. the same the whole day, they were cooking and sewing, yeah, it's like a regular wedding. They didn't make much fuss about, it, about him. And Saturday night, Saturday night, of course, after Avdoli, he made Avdoli, then they had a gathering, so he joined the gathering, and he began to dance with them. Telling stories about his, his the, about his past, about his father and mother, absolutely not indicating disapproval. Even by one word, di disapproval or censure. 
with regard to their behavior during his sojourn in their stay in, in their kinnath. Sunday morning, he got on the... I don't know how he came by machine. He got, he said, Shalom, Litraot, Velechol Biyachat, Sudachat. That's what he said. The next day, all dishes were thrown out, and the kitchen was converted into kosher. I can tell you, Tachirim, but Agudis Rabban wouldn't have helped. Wouldn't have helped. Wouldn't have helped. You ask me, by what was the power he, he simply, so to say, exerted? What power, I mean? The power of his personality. He was a religious personality. He was in love with Yahadis. As my man, they say, Kiodo Mashege Bavasisha. As a, one is in love with a woman, so should a man be in love with Yahadis, with God. If you don't have it, you can't influence me. You were listening to a recording, a, some 35, 40-year-old recording of Moreno Verabeno Harav Moran Harav Yosef Dov Alevi Salavechik. Another section in today's Pasha, it's a very, very rich Pasha. Uh, a lot of things which are, at least on the surface, disconnected. There's a deep underlying connection between everything in the Pasha, namely the preparations the setting out to the journey to Eretz Israel, but all different sorts of preparations. One of them was the uh, anointment of the Levim to be Levim. The Levim was switched with the firstborn, and they became Levim. They became servants of the Mishkan. And there were 22,000 Levim. And the Levim, it says, V'hinif Aaron et halvim Hashem. Aaron should raise and wave the Levim Tnufa Lifnei Hashem before God. The Pashib Shad and the only Pashat that Chazal considered was that each and every Levi was raised by Aaron. There's a certain uh, activity in Korbanot a Mincha specifically when you bring a Mincha which is a uh, offering to God from the vegetative world from, made from flour and oil so the offering is done by Tnufa. Tnufa means it's raised up up and down to the four uh, directions of the world. Here it says, Aaron picked up and took each Levi as though he were a sacrifice and waved and pounded. This is how he consecrated the Levi to God. But there were 22,000 Leviim. The Poskim are at a loss. How is it possible that Aaron Kohen waved up, down, east, west, north, south? 22,000 Nebiyim. And the only answer that I know of in the is it was a nice, it was a miracle. Aaron was given superhuman strength and perhaps superhuman speed and individually lifted and waved each and every Levi and consecrated him to the name of God. I once heard an interesting comment from Avchaim Shmulevet Zatzal, Shashiva of Mir, about uh, or directed from out of this particular Pasuk and the understanding that you're dealing with a miracle. The Gemara says that one of the Levim was Korach, because he was a Levi. And the Gemara says that Korach is part of the ongoing development. It's a little bit before the actual rebellion of Korach, but it's part of Korach's ongoing developing rebelliousness. Korach walked out after being waved by Aaron Kohen and started making fun of the whole idea. You know, he said, well, look what they're doing inside, Aaron and Moshe. They're taking each Levi 
and they're waving him like he was like he was a mincha, like he was a a pan of flour. Isn't this silly? Isn't it? This making it's making fun of the Levian. It's part of his to inciting the people, perhaps inciting the Levian against Moshe Rabbeinu. Rav Chaim Shnevitz asked, but the whole thing was an obvious and clear and distinct miracle. How could Korach be a personal witness? He himself had been raised up by in Aaron's hands together with the other Levian. He witnessed in his eyes and in his body the miraculous nature of what was going on and yet he could walk out and make fun of the whole thing. And if Chaim's answer was very simple, it's, it's just to repeat the question without a question mark but with an exclamation point. And this we learned that people are capable of viewing the miracles and being totally unchanged. Rav Chaim said this, the sikha he was giving, I repeat, Rav Chaim Shalevitz was Rosh Yeshiva, the Miri Yeshiva in Yerushalayim. He says, the sikha he said in the Yeshiva after the Six-Day War, about the Six-Day War. He said, now you understand how it is that people could have been in Yerushalayim, could have seen what took place, could have seen how the guns of the enemy fell silent, how we returned and in, in, in five days conquered all of the West Bank, the Golan, the Sinai Peninsula, returned to Harabayit, returned to the Kotel Maravi, viewed obvious miracles right in front of your eyes, and yet we know that they're unchanged. And I think Rav Chaim's comment was not only about irreligious Jews who weren't chosun b'tshuva, but also was about religious Jews who were not chosun b'tshuva. Most of the population viewed the miracles, recognized that something was really extraordinary here, but one day later went about their, went about their regular business. Lamdeinu, to teach us, Rav Chaim said, this is what we learned from Korach. Korach was a wise person. Korach was a smart person. He personally witnessed amazing miracles in the Mishkan. But in the end, this didn't change his path in life even, even one bit. It's a sad lesson. But what if we take to heart, perhaps we can avoid its implications in our own lives. And that's all for today. Wishing you a Shabbat Shalom. We'll be back on Monday with the Shir of Araf Tavori, the next installment in the weekly mitzvah. This time for Parshat Korach. You might notice that the different Shir are not in the same Parsha. This program, the Erev Shabbat program, we talked about Baalotcha, just like the Parshat HaShavua should have been about Baalotcha if we had a Parshat HaShavua. But the Rav Tavori series, Rav Tavori is deeply, more deeply rooted in Minhag Eretz Yisrael. And in Eretz Yisrael we'll be already reading, reading Shlach tomorrow and Korach next week. So Rav Tavori's weekly mitzvah will be for Parshat Korach. The Parshat HaShavua show next week will be for Parshat Shlach. If that doesn't confuse you, well, you should be confused. I'm confused. And until then, wishing you Shabbat Shalom, Kotov. This has been Ezra Bick. I was your host. Our guest today was the Rav Zal, Rav Yosef Salavechik. Shabbat Shalom, Kotov, Bebekata Torah Mitzion. Spread Torah, learn Torah. This has been KMTT, Kimitzion Tetzei Torah, the Torah podcast, broadcasting from Alonsh Foot in Eretz Israel. We'll be back next week. Shabbat Shalom Umvorach.